Amen. Well, we're only having two, two hymns, but I just wanted to read a couple of verses of, of a hymn that we might have uh, sung as a, as a precursor to coming to God's word. Uh, you'll, you'll probably uh, remember it when I, when I, I, I start. It's hymn 332 in, in, in Christian hymns. Just the first uh, few verses. The spirit breathes upon the word and brings the truth to sight. Precepts and promises afford a sanctifying light. A glory gills the sacred page, majestic like the sun. It gives a light to every age. It gives but borrows none. The hand that gave it still supplies the gracious light and heat its truths upon the nation's rise. They rise, but never set. And uh, that's surely our prayer, isn't it? The spirit would breathe upon the word and bring the truth to sight uh, for each and every one of us. Well, we're in uh, Exodus uh, chapter 32, and my, my particular focus is, is on the prayer from verses 9 through 14 that Moses prayed and uh, apologies here to the house group this is something that we we looked at briefly some some weeks ago but it did rather strike me and I wanted to develop things a, a, a little bit uh, so it's not an exact re repeat to those who were uh, in the uh, well Exodus 32 we're in the book of Exodus and you know the story very well. God's people uh, had been captive in Egypt and God raised up Moses. Moses in turn confronts Pharaoh with those words, let my people go. Moses didn't want to let the people go. They were highly useful uh, to him. And uh, then God brings these eggs to, to move Pharaoh's heart but pharaoh is is stubborn and even though after a while uh, pharaoh says okay yes okay I'll, I'll i'll let the people go uh when the plagues stop he 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 relents and goes back on his word and then we come to the last of the plagues and the most serious of the plagues the death of the firstborn we have the night of the passover and god's angel uh, passes over the land of uh, Egypt and puts to death the firstborn of the uh, people of, of, of Egypt and passes over those who have put blood on the doorposts of the people of Israel. So after that, Pharaoh lets the people go. We have the flight from Egypt and they get to the Red Sea. Now, by this time, of course, they're being pursued by Pharaohs had a, if you like, another change of mind. We must go and get these people back. We can't let them escape. And we have God's wonderful deliverance as he parts the Red Sea and the people move through. Then after that, we have God's miraculous provision of his people in the wilderness. We have the manna and the quail and the water from the rock. And then they come to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, the giving of the Ten Commandments to a redeemed people. And that's in Exodus, Exodus uh, chapter 20. And, and thereafter, Moses goes up to 
Sinai for 40 days and nights. And God gives him details of the law that he's to bring to the people. Well, that brings us through to chapter 32. And we find the people are impatient. Moses has been away a long time and they can't wait for him uh, to come back to them. So they ask Aaron to make gods for them, which sadly he does. And after he's done that, they have a festival. Uh, supposedly a religious festival. That's how Aaron supposedly intended it. And they eat and they drink. In the NIV, it says they then they danced and they ran wild. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 7 tells us, gives us a little bit more of an explanation of what exactly happened. And 1 Corinthians 10 7 tells us they they indulged in pagan revelry. So it doesn't leave much to the imagination, does it, as to what was going on with these people. So that's something of the the, the background to the narrative that we had. And I want to look firstly at God's attitude to the people. What did God think about the people? What was his attitude to them? Well, in a word, God was furious. Look at verse seven. The Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've corrupted themselves. They've broken God's law, especially the second commandment, which speaks about not having any idols. Um, Basically, they've broken the first commandment as well. But it seems to me particularly it's a breach of the second commandment, you shall not have idols, you shall not make them, you shall not bow down to them, and you shall not worship them. And all these things the people were doing. You look through the, the, the narrative and they even they attributed their deliverance to the idol. Look at verse uh, four. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a car, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. That's repeated in verse eight. And as for for their attitude to to Moses, they're just totally dismissive of of God's man, Moses. Uh, In the uh, NIV, the translation is slightly different. Uh, and it, it says this, they, 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 they speak of this fellow Moses, this fellow Moses, you know, forgetting that he was the man who under God had led them out of slavery and through the Red Sea. This fellow Moses, they'd owed everything to what Moses had done uh, under God. And God describes them as a stiff necked people. Look at verse nine. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, They are a stiff-necked people. It conjures up a picture, doesn't it, of a a horse that will not respond or be led. I'm not a great uh, horse rider. There may be some of you who who have uh, got into horses uh, in, in the past, but I do have the odd recollection of going with groups of people or maybe as a family to pony trekking 
centres. And uh, I can remember we went to a, a, a place in Gower once as a, a, a as a family. And you know what it's like? They they bring out all the the, the horses, and uh, uh, we were helped to get on to the horse. But I do remember that um, Jane's horse, which was a, which was a pretty big one, was in the stable and. Uh, uh, they sat Jane on the, the saddle. We were all outside and our our ponies dutifully trotted towards the the, the entrance to, to, to embark on a little trek. And uh, Jane's horse would not budge, despite much urging and whispering and shouting and, and, and calling and so on from Jane and sort of jumping up and down and doing something with the stirrups. The horse would not budge. It was stubborn. Uh, obviously, the owners knew this as well, I suspect after a little chuckle amongst themselves, um, they then sent the boss and he gave the horse a bit of a, a, a kick and off, off he went. And so, some of you too may have tried um, to lead a horse or, may, or maybe a donkey and you've kind of tugged uh, on, the, on, on, on the reins and, 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 and wanted to move them in a certain direction. But if they do not want to move, you will not be able to budge them, will you? You know what it's like, they'll put their hooves in the ground, lean back slightly, the, nif the, the neck will be stiff, they will not budge. And God is using that picture to describe the people of, of Israel. Stubborn, they will not budge, they will not respond to God's word, they will not trust him, they will not obey him. Well, verses 9 and 10 tell us what God planned. He planned to show his anger against other people. He was going to destroy them and he was going to start again with Moses. So he says to Moses, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. I've had enough of these people. Uh, he is uh, saying to Moses, I'm going to destroy them and I'll start again with you. A little bit like he started again with uh, Noah in times past. So that's what God planned. Then we come in, in, in verse 10 as well to what God asked or possibly what God commanded. And, and this is most remarkable. The sovereign Lord of the universe makes a request of Moses and the request that he makes is that Moses does not interfere with his purposes verse 10 now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them Moses don't pray for these people he's saying it's astonishing isn't it uh, maybe Moses was already praying before we get to verse 9 I suspect he was and, and so God is saying to him stop it stop praying for these people we maybe chat about this later on is this God's way of telling us that there is great power in prayer is what we read as a, a prohibition Moses don't pray is it really an encouragement for Moses to pray I think it is well, would not Moses have already known that God was a God who answered prayer uh, throughout the uh, 
the previous chapters, if you read through the book of Exodus, you'll see that this is happening all the time. Moses, they get to the Red Sea. Moses is in prayer. Uh, in chapter 15, they come to a place where the waters are bitter, a uh, place called Mara. And uh, Moses prays and God makes the waters sweet after he cried out to the Lord. And then in chapter 17, they come to a place called Rephidim and the people are thirsty and there's no water. And Moses cries to God ag again and he's told to strike the rock and the water comes out of the rock. So God had a track record of answering prayer. So for Moses, prayer was kind of it's, it was in his DNA. It was his default action in times of need. So what is God doing here? Well, on the surface, he's giving an incentive to Moses not to pray. Moses, don't pray. Because uh, if you don't pray, then. You will be the leader of a new people. What a temptation uh, to Moses, maybe. How would Moses respond? Well, let's spend some time thinking about Moses' response. We look at what at God's situation, what God thought about the people, what God planned, what God asked of Moses. Let's look at what Moses did. Well, Moses acts as a mediator, standing between God and men and uh you, you can't but read it without uh, seeing in, in Moses a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate mediator, of course, representing the sinner, making atonement for our sin, bringing about uh, reconciliation. So I think in, it, when we when we read these verses, we see in Moses a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, an imperfect type, but a type in part of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Moses do? When he seeks the favor of the Lord, verse 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. He appeals to God. Uh, you could say he challenges God. And basically he's saying to the Lord, well, why are you doing this, Lord? Why? How can you do these things that you say you're going to do? And there are arguments he brings uh, to bear. He reminds God of his relationship with his people. He says to the Lord in verse uh, 11, Moses sought the favour of the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? God had said to Moses, they're your people, Moses. And Moses saying to God, no, they're not. They're your people, Lord. You're bound to them. You brought these people out of uh, Egypt. I didn't do it. You did. And you can't dump them now. It makes no sense uh, to do that. He then raises another argument to the Lord. He says, Lord, your name will be spoken ill of. Think of what the Egyptians will say. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Your reputation is at stake, Lord. Moses isn't the only one to 
to pray a prayer along these lines. If you go a little further along in the Bible to Joshua, Joshua 7 and verse 9, Joshua prays in a very similar manner with these words. He says, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of our defeat and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So both Moses and, and, and Joshua uh, feel it rightfully appropriate to remind God of his reputation and his and his glory. You know, what will the people say? The people will say you are too weak to, to, to deliver your people or you're fickle and you change your mind and you drift off from your supposed set purpose. So on the back of that, Moses pleads with God that God would turn and relent. Verse 12, turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. But Moses doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 13 and he reminds God of the promises that God had made to Abraham, to Isaac and to uh, to Israel. You said you were going to make a great nation of these people. Go back to Genesis uh, 12. You can't, you can't go back on this promise. You made an oath and, and he reminds God of the oath that he had made. You swore by yourself. Powerful stuff, isn't it? He's reminded God, God, you staked your name and your character on this promise. You can't go back on it now. So it's powerful pleading, isn't it not, uh, by Moses. Uh, A.W. Pink has quite a nice summary of the, uh, the appeal that Moses makes and, uh, and, and says this. He appeals to God's grace. He appeals to God's glory and he appeals to God's faithfulness, to his grace, his glory and his faithfulness. It's a helpful way of, of remembering. How did God respond to this? Well, we're told in verse 14, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. God answered Moses' prayer. So we could say it all ends happily ever after. But it raises questions in our mind, doesn't it? How, how are we to understand this? Well, I, I read passages like this and, and you have to conclude, surely prayer is, is, is a mystery. There are mysterious aspects of prayer, are there not? Can prayer really change the mind and purposes of, of God? Does God really change his mind? Um, well, there are plenty of passages in, in Scripture that make it, you know, abundantly clear that God doesn't. I'll just read a familiar one from Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God is not like us. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't lie. He says something and he he does it. And the Bible tells us, does it not, that God has a, a secret purpose, a secret will or decree, if you like, that is that is fixed. 
So we know such truths. Christ will come again, fixed. There's, there will be a judgment. The elect will be saved. Jesus will reign. And we could go on and on and on. These are the purposes of, of God and nothing but nothing will stop them. God will not change his mind. If God has saved you, you are saved. God will not go back uh, on that. You can't become uh, unsaved. And we glory in such truths. But there is also God's revealed will. And his revealed will is expressed in terms of, of, of wanting us to live pure lives or desiring that all would respond to the gospel. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, he, he says he he reveals himself as, as a God who would want all people to honour the Lord Jesus and respond to him. And one aspect of, of, of this revealed will is the truth that God will respond or react to the behaviour of men and women and change a previously revealed course of action. And in the same way, he will respond to the prayers of his people. Just going to read a few verses in in Jeremiah 18 that I think are helpful. Jeremiah 18 verses 5 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed. And if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. So God responds to the repentance of his people or to the stubbornness of his people. So in that sense, you could say God, uh, God, God will change, but his fixed purpose, his fixed purposes will never change. But there's always forgiveness for the penitent. What a glorious truth that is. I mean, I don't know the situation of people who are listening in uh, this evening. You may read a passage like Exodus 32 and think to yourself, well, I'm a bit like that nation of uh, uh, of Israel, God, God would be well shot of me. I'm such a, a, a failure. I can understand if God wants to wash his hands of me uh, com com completely. And yet this passage is a great comfort, isn't it? That God responds to the prayers of his people, to the repentance of his uh, people. God, well, we, we're to never think God has had enough of us and as as long as there's for, as long as there's a, a, a repentant attitude in our heart we will come to a god who is willing to uh, forgive well how do these truths help with sort of questions that we might have does god want me to pray absolutely yes is prayer pointless that's because we think, well, God has worked these things out in, in, in advance already. Is prayer pointless? Certainly not. The Bible screams out at us, doesn't it, that it is God's will that people should pray and that he will answer. And in a mysterious way, God, in his grace and his wisdom, 
he condescends to use our prayers in the outworking of his purposes. Think of all the great Bible characters in the scriptures. They knew that God was sovereign. Did they ever use that truth uh, to come to the conclusion that prayer was unnecessary? No, they were all prayer warriors, weren't they? They that prayer, like Moses, I said of Moses, prayer was part of his DNA. And that's true of all of these great Bible characters. They knew they needed to pray and they knew that they came to a God who listened. How do I argue my case in prayer? What th what things do I say to God when I, I want something to happen? Well, learn from, from Moses. Appeal to his God's grace, to his glory, to his reputation, to his faithfulness, to his promises. Remind God of the promises that he has made and, 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 and is pledged uh, to keep, because God will ever be consistent with those characteristics. Now think to yourself, what, what promises of God can I hang my hat on when I pray to him? When, maybe when I pray for my unconverted family members, what promises of God encourage me uh, to pray and expect a, a response from God? Well, think about it. There are many promises. Are there, are there not about God delighting uh, to save people? Perhaps we can think about this uh, later on. What promises can I claim when I'm uh, pleading for those who are in despair? There are, there are folks in the church who are having a real struggle. Those, that, that struggle may uh, be concerning health issues. It may be family issues or money issues or relationship issues and maybe a bundle of other things as, as, as well. And, and, and people are, are struggling and in despair. What promises of God can I hold on to to when I pray for such people or if I'm one of those people has not God promised by his spirit to be our comforter to draw alongside and to uh, to, to to help us are there, are there not grounds there for us to to cling on to and plead with the Lord well I hope that just you know this brief consideration is, is a stimulus to us to pray. The Bible tells us, well, Jesus basically tells us we're to pray and not to lose heart. We're to pray boldly. We're to pray earnestly and persistently. And God's glory should be the focus of our prayers and his promises, the, the drivers, as it were, of our prayers and his love and care for his people, the context of our prayer. Well, may the Lord teach us and uh, help us. May the Lord teach us to pray like this, like this. Amen. Let's sing.